The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's take our Bibles now, if you would, and open them to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. And tonight we're going to conclude our study on the Holy Spirit. And I'm not going to finish tonight because I don't have anything else to say. Uh, there is plenty of material for me to deal with. And I'm not stopping because I've exhausted everything that can be said. But I've learned as uh, I've gone through this series over the past 15 messages that it's just like many of the others that we look at. Uh, it's always a struggle to figure out what to pin in and what to leave out. So there are a lot of things that have been left out. We could go on for many, many more sermons talking about the Holy Spirit. But I hope that I have included enough that you've learned something, something that's helpful, and it helps you to understand a little bit better who the Holy Spirit is and uh, the work that he does in our hearts and regeneration and then also the way that he works in us throughout all of our Christian lives. Now, I want to call your attention then to Ephesians chapter 5 and a short statement that's made by Paul in verse number 18. But I, before we get there, let me back all the way up and if you have your Bible there, let's back up to verse number 9 and start reading there. Ephesians 5 verse number 9. Uh, Paul's writing and he says, For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things are reproved, all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And then verse 18, our text verse, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now I want to take the last part of that verse, but be filled with with the Spirit. And let's use that as the theme for tonight's message. Now, some weeks ago, in another part of this series, I, I took a few minutes to talk about the filling of the Spirit. And at that time, it was just a sub-point of a main point, and I didn't really spend very much time with it. So I thought it was such an important topic that what we should do, we should come back to it and talk a, a bit more about it tonight. Now, you'll notice in this scripture what seems to be a very strange connection. That in the first half of the verse, Paul says, do not be drunk with wine. And then in the second part, he says, but be filled with the Spirit. And that seems like a very odd thing to put those two particular things together. But Paul has a very definite purpose in connecting these two thoughts. And my purpose tonight is not that we'll split off the first half of the verse and give you a treatise on the evils of alcohol, uh, but to use this verse as Paul intended, and, and I found a very short, simple explanation from William MacDonald, which I think is very helpful. He writes, Paul's recommended alternative to being drunk with wine is being filled with the Spirit. 
This connection may startle us at first, but when we compare and contrast the two states, we see why the apostle links them in this way. First, there are certain similarities. In both conditions, the person is under a power outside himself. In one case, it is the power of intoxicating liquor, sometimes called spirits. In the other case, it is the power of the spirit. In both conditions, the person is fervent. On the day of Pentecost, the fervency produced by the Spirit was mistaken for that produced by new wine. In both conditions, the person's walk is affected. His physical walk in the case of drunkenness and his moral behavior in the other instance. But there are two ways in which the two conditions present sharp contrast. In the case of drunkenness, there is dissipation and debauchery. The Spirit's filling never produces these. In the case of drunkenness... There is a loss of self-control, but the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. A believer who is filled with the Spirit is never transported outside himself where he can no longer control his actions. The Spirit of a prophet is always subject to the prophet. Now, if you remember last week, I I preached a message that I called a bridge sermon. Uh, It was a bridge between point number four of our outline, which was the Holy Spirit is abused, to the fifth point that we take up tonight, which is the Holy Spirit is activated in believers. Now, the last statement that McDonald made, I just read to you, is very appropriate here. He said, a believer who is filled with the Spirit is never transported outside of himself where he can no longer control his actions. The Spirit of a prophet is always subject to the prophet. And we read the supporting verse for that a couple of weeks ago. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 32 says, And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. And one of the great abuses of the Holy Spirit by the charismatic movement is the total loss of control. And we talked a good deal over the past few weeks about the charismatic movement. But one of the things that characterizes it is the loss of control where they begin to speak in gibberish and all these crazy types of things that they call tongues that they say came from the Holy Spirit. And I don't know if you've ever watched some of their programs on television. I have, and I've seen them do this, that they'll get down on the floor sometimes and they'll walk around on all fours on their knees and on their hands, barking like dogs and laughing like hyenas. Now, that's not evidence of the Holy Spirit's filling. That is a demonic spiritual drunkenness that the Holy Spirit wants no part of. That is a loss of control. And what the Bible teaches us is that the Spirit is always in control, that when we're under the influence of the Spirit, we will be in control of our faculties. Now, those in the charismatic movement would do well if they would compare Scripture with Scripture and understand what Paul means when he wrote this verse in Ephesians 5.18 so that when they seek the filling of the Spirit, that filling would be marked with control rather than chaos. And so they would surrender to the Holy Spirit rather than to the Spirit of the Antichrist. So last week we talked about that and we talked about the proper worship of the Spirit And that message was a bridge to take us from the negatives of the abuse of the Spirit into the positive side of this, which is the evidence that the Holy Spirit really is at work in our hearts. And the Holy Spirit's activity is evident when we are filled with the Spirit. And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. Now, let's consider first that 
filling is a command to be obeyed. It's a command to be obeyed. We see here in Ephesians 5 that Paul writes, be filled. Now, if you look at the first half of the verse, we don't have any problem understanding the negative implications of being drunk with wine. I mean, the scriptures give us plenty of information. We don't really have to search very hard to find the evils of alcohol and the dissatisfaction that God has with those that would use alcohol and become, uh, and become drunkards. Unless anyone think, though, that drunkenness is not such a serious sin, that God really doesn't think very much about it, then we need to look at what God says specifically about that terrible sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, Paul writing again, says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now there we see the bad company that God puts drunkenness with, and then we see what God thinks about it. So when Paul says, when he gives a command in the first half of the verse, and he says, do not be drunk with wine, we understand that to be a very clear, pointed, acceptable commandment. Now we, we realize that's not something optional. He says, don't be drunk with wine. You're not to be a drunkard. We accept that. We know that that's a command that we can expect that we'd have to obey. Well, joined to that in the second half of the verse is a positive commandment. The other one's negative. This one is positive. He says, be filled with the Spirit. And as that negative command is strong in the first half of the verse, just as strong is this positive commandment that we find in the second half of the verse. And so it's not optional. All of us as Christians are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. So we have to find out what that is, and we have to find out how to do that, because that's a command of God. Now, secondly, filling is a commitment to be made. So that tells us that we're to go after this, that this is something that we're to pursue. And we're to have our lives in such a condition that the Holy Spirit can fill us, so that it is possible for him to fill us. Well, how would we do that? Well, Romans 12, verse number 1, gives a clue. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, that's a verse that you just heard this morning when Brother Dalton was teaching. We used it just a couple of weeks ago also in another message on the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's a very good verse to keep in your mind. And, and this verse shows us how we can be filled. Now, to encourage the filling of the Spirit, our bodies and our minds and our will must be surrendered to God. That we must invite the God to have complete control of everything that we do. Now, of course, we understand that God is sovereign. God is always in control of everything, but being filled with the Spirit is when we recognize this and when we acknowledge it and when we willingly accept that God is the one who is to have control of our lives. So you're ready to be filled when you are fully and willingly surrendered to God and you realize that it is God's will that you be filled. Now the problems that we have in our Christian lives, the 
ones that are often too hard for us to solve and the things that we struggle with constantly, things that we never seem to overcome, those are a result of the lack of the filling of the Spirit or an unyielded heart. See, when you're angry, when you're jealous, when you're prideful, when you're arrogant, when you're doubtful, and when you're worried, those are products of a heart that have not fully surrendered to the Holy Spirit's control. Now, in the Sunday morning services these past few weeks, we've been looking at Matthew chapter 18 and talking about us as children of God and how that God cares for us, how that God protects us. And we've learned in that passage in uh, Matthew about love and care and concern that we ought to have for others. And as I was teaching this morning on uh, verses 15 through 20, where we're talking about church discipline, that's going to result in real care, love, and concern for other people in our church. So when you are the type of Christian that doesn't show that kind of care, and when you can do things like get your little digs in on people at, on Facebook, or you can turn up your nose at people when you see them in the church and not fellowship with them, you, you have to ask the question, is that a heart that's really yielded to the Spirit? Should there be a dividing line here in the church that separates this group of people from that group of people because we can't get along? Well, that would be the product of a heart that's not yielded to the Spirit's control. So we couldn't say that anything like that, shunning another member of the church, uh, not having fellowship with them, turning away from them, that is the product of an unyielded heart. And so we know that the Holy Spirit is not active in us when those kinds of things happen. Instead, what a Holy Spirit-filled Christian does, he walks with Christ, he walks in the light as Christ is in the light, he takes on the character of Christ, which means that he would treat people in the way that Christ treated them. See, being filled with the Spirit is a commitment that you will offer self as a living sacrifice. And until you do that, you'll not feel the Spirit's power You'll not feel him working in you and, and uh, working through you. Now, let me give you a, a, a three-step process, if you will, about being filled with the Spirit. And I, and I really don't mean to make this a mechanical thing. It's not a cookbook to success. But there are some steps that do need to be taken. And if you don't do this, you'll never sense the filling of the Spirit. First of all, what do you need to do? Well, you need to commit to examination. Commit to examination. Now, in this morning's message, I talked a little bit about watching out for sin in the lives of others. And I, I said that if we're true Christians that want to walk in the light as Christ is in the light, if we want God to lead us, then we're not going to have any objections to people scrutinizing our lives. Uh, we really wouldn't care that anybody would look closely at us because we want our lives to be what God wants them to be. Well, in order for them to be that way, we have to commit ourselves to self-examination. Now, one of the ways that I pray is this. I, when I'm praying, I, I almost always ask God to give me a sense of, of close fellowship with him by the Holy Spirit constantly communicating with me. And I ask him to remove all of the hindrances from me that would prevent that closeness of fellowship. And so that means that I have to be honest about my sins. And I don't always want to be honest. And that's because I like sin. 
There are things that I like to do. You're the same way. There are things that we like to do, and we're not always honest about our sin. You see what Satan never does? He doesn't tempt you with things that you don't want to do. Satan tempts you with the things that you like and not stuff that you hate. So you sin, and I sin, and we like it so much that very quickly what we'll do is we will rationalize a sin. If there's something that we don't want to give up, then we begin to rationalize it in our minds and we make it no longer sin. Well, there's a problem with that. You and I don't define sin. God is the one that defines sin. So what we try to do is we try to shove away our sin and put it into a category of a gray area. And we say, well, that's a gray area. I'm just not too sure about that. That may or it may not be sin. But most of the time, we're quite sure about it. We have the sense of it. We have a conviction of it, so we know it's sin. But what we've done, we've just shoved the conviction aside simply because it's too hard to give up the sin. But you have to be honest with sin. You have to be like David. He said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And so it's useless for a Christian to pray and say, Lord, please come fill me with your spirit when you know that you have sin that you're not willing to give up. That there is some sin that you're harboring and you won't confess it and you won't give it up. Don't expect that the Holy Spirit is going to fill you. Now what you have to do, you must examine yourself and you must find that sin. As Paul said, let a man examine himself. And there's a reason that we use that scripture almost all the time. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We use it all the time before we come together or before we partake of the Lord's Supper. And that's because we don't want to be guilty and have sin in our hearts when we come to the table of the Lord. Now, it's sure that a person who is a true Christian, you can't go on ignoring sin. There's no child of God that can constantly... Keep, keep sweeping sin under the rug and just refuse to deal with it. You can't do it. And that's because of the change that takes place in you by regeneration. Your regeneration simply will not permit it. Now, the natural, unregenerate person is not like that. He is, as Arthur Pink describes, Pink says, few seem to understand that conscience in the natural man is inoperative unless stirred up by the Spirit. As a fallen creature thoroughly in love with sin, man resists and disputes against any conviction of sin. My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Man, being flesh, would never have the least distaste of any iniquity unless the spirit excited those remnants of natural light which still remain in the soul. Being flesh... Fallen man is perverse against the convictions of the spirit and remains so forever unless quickened and made spirit. So that's the man without Christ, the person without him. He examines his life and he has no sensibility of sin. Or we might qualify that a little bit because you do find people that know that they're sinners. They recognize they're sinners, but they really have no sense that their sin is against a holy God. They don't understand. Sin has eternal consequences. And so a person like that is never excited to do something about his sin. That takes Holy Spirit direction. If you haven't been stirred by the Holy Spirit, you'll never recognize sin. Well, obviously, 
A regenerated person is not like that. There's a change that's taken place in us. We've been saved by the blood of Christ, and so we have a much different viewpoint of sin. Sin's been opened up to us. Sin is something that we recognize now. Now we know that sin does offend God, and we know that we were under the wrath of God because of sin, and we know that we've been saved by Christ's blood, and certainly after we're saved, we're not going to lose that sensibility of sin. If anything else, as we get closer to the Lord, and as we learn more about him, we recognize sin even more. So we have to deal with it. We can't just shove it off. Sin will make us use of, uh, make us restless, and, and it makes us uneasy. And so what a real Christian wants to do, he wants to search out and eliminate the sin in his life. Now, when you find the sin, what do you do? Well, that's the second step, and that is to commit to confession. Commit to confession. When you've found it out, admit to it and confess it. Name the sin in your life. Now, if you're unwilling to call your anger and your pride and your lust and your bitterness, if, you're refused, if you refuse to call that sin, then you're never going to find a sin to confess. And I suppose that's why you run into people that say that they don't sin. I was reading or heard about a, a person just recently, a lady in a church, and I suppose that there are many of these in churches that preach against sin, but this was a lady that was very angry with her pastor because he said, all of us are sinners. And he said, what we need to do is that we need to daily confess our sins to God. All of us are sinners. Well, she didn't like that. She didn't like it. She didn't want anybody to tell her that she was a sinner. She didn't think so. What's the problem? That's the unwillingness to call sin, sin. That's why you don't recognize it. You're, you're unwilling to call sin, sin. And unless we're willing to recognize it and to confess it, we cannot be filled. And the Apostle John wrote, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Paul wrote in 2 Timothy, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. And let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified in meat or fit for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. Now, do you think that the Holy Spirit would come in and fill a dirty vessel? If sin stains the wall of a cup, do you think that the Holy Spirit will come in with that sin and use that vessel for his work? Well, you know better than that. The Holy Spirit doesn't do that. You have to clean the vessel. And the Word of God says that the way to clean the vessel is to confess your sins. And then Christ is faithful and just to forgive you of those sins. So this is what we seek. We seek to be cleansed from the sin, to be purged from it, to be sanctified by God's work so that vessel is clean and can be used by the Lord. Well, there's a third step. First, you commit to examination. Secondly, you commit to confession. And then thirdly, you commit to submission. Submission. Well, how do you completely submit to God? There's really only one way that you can do that. You have to empty self of self. 
means that you have to prioritize God's work so that you're available to do what the Spirit wants you to do when he wants you to do it. Now, here's where it's very helpful for us to clearly understand what happens when a person receives Christ as Savior. Salvation does not come to anyone who is unwilling to submit to the Lordship of Christ. Now, that means that Christ is our master, that we are in a master-slave relationship. Now, a, a slave doesn't have his own agenda. A slave doesn't hear the master's voice calling and then say, Oh, I'll be there in a minute. I've got some other things that I have to take care of first. Just be patient. I'll be there. I'll get to you sooner or later. Now, a slave that does that wouldn't be a slave very long. He'd be freed. He'd be freed by death because his master would kill him. Slaves don't do that. Now, thank God that he doesn't always kill disobedient slaves because I'd never have anybody to preach to. And you'd never have anybody to preach to, for that matter, if he killed disobedient slaves. But we're not going to submit until we recognize that this is what we're in. We are in this master-slave relationship with Jesus Christ. And this is a real thing. I mean, if you're a Christian, you have become a slave to Christ. I mean, the Bible says that you have been bought with a price. A ransom price has been paid for you, and it's the highest price that was ever paid. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the ransom price paid for sin. That's what bought you out of sin, and that means that you belong to him. You no longer belong to you. 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We belong to him. So if there's anything that you're unwilling to do, the Lord calls you and you resist the spirit, then you can't expect to be filled by him. Instead of inviting filling into your life, what you invite is chastisement. See, God has a way of bringing you to your knees one way or the other. And I'm just telling you, it's better for you to start out on your knees, like the Apostle Paul, and saying, Lord, what will you have me to do? It's better to start out on your knees than to have God bring you to your knees. And he can certainly do it. So the filling of the Spirit is a commitment to be made. It's accomplished by committing to examination, committing to confession, and committing to submission. And then filling is a command to be obeyed. It's a commitment to be made. Now, thirdly, filling is a contentment to be claimed. There's contentment that comes with the filling of the Spirit. Now, this is a very simple truth that can't be denied. There is no Christian who is content unless he is surrendered to the Holy Spirit. Now, we see many people that claim Christ, and that doesn't seem to be the way that it is. I mean, they seem to be very content and what they're doing. They can go on living day after day, doing the things that they always did, never thinking about God really. Maybe they'll show up for church on a Sunday, maybe not. Maybe they'll be here, maybe not. And they don't really act like anything's happened into their in their lives once they have believed. And I'll tell you quite honestly, those kinds of people are not Christians. I mean, they, they, they may have made a profession, and they, they may have walked somebody's aisle, and they may have got dunked in a baptistry, and they may have filled out their decision cards, or whatever they've done, but if a person can go on living in the same sins that he always committed, never having a change in his life, that person is not really a Christian. 
Because a change takes place in us. The, the Holy Spirit does something in us. There's a work that takes place there. But you have many ministries that pat themselves on the back and they, they have all their decision cards that have been filled out and, and they believe that they have accomplished great things for God, but the converts that they have don't show any, don't show any evidence of being saved. Now they got them to pray the sinner's prayer, but there's not really any evidence of salvation. So they're never assimilated into the church never become really a part of it. They're content to go on and do just as they always did. Those people are not saved. You can't be saved and enjoy sin. You can't be a Christian and insist that you will live in sin and experience no repercussions. Now, you understand. I'm sure you do. I'm not talking about working for your salvation. I'm talking about a person who has been saved by the grace of God as we're all saved by faith, by grace... We can't do anything to earn it, but a faith that is real is a faith that works. It is a faith that's lived out in the, under the leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's not a part of your faith, then you don't have real faith. That's what James said. James said you, you can't have real faith unless there's works that are produced by it. Works don't save you, but they are produced by real faith. So these people are not saved because... The Holy Spirit hasn't worked in them because when the Holy Spirit works, what he always does is start this progressive act, this progressive work of sanctification. And so that means that there really is no such thing as a carnal Christian. Now, you've probably heard that for years and you've heard it preached about carnal Christians. And supposedly, a carnal Christian is one that's saved, but he's never really experienced a changed life. Now, we will admit that there are Christians that act carnally, but there are no carnal Christians. And so don't be content to think that you're saved and just say, oh, but I'm just a carnal Christian. And I don't do the things that I'm supposed to do, but I made my profession, I'm just a carnal Christian. And these are the people that the Lord Jesus Christ will meet and he'll say, depart from me, I never never knew you. So these are people that go on and they do whatever they like to do. They're perfectly content to go on in a false profession. And that is a horrible state to be in. To be fooled into thinking that you know Christ and no change has ever taken place. And it's also a very, very bad thing for some preacher to tell people, well, you prayed the sinner's prayer, you got saved, and don't let anybody tell you that you're not saved. Just be content, you're on your way to heaven. And we wonder how many people are there sitting at home that they've heard a presentation of the gospel that ends in something like that, and they're sitting at home, they don't ever have any change in their life, or they may be sitting in the church with no sensibility of sin, still in that precarious position that they have not received Christ, they've just been taught they're carnal Christians. And I hope that there is nobody here sitting in a spiritual contentment of a past prayer and of a past baptism and of a past response to an invitation. Because the gauge of your salvation is not what happened to you in the past. The gauge of your salvation is where are you right now? What have you believed? Did you really believe? Believe? Well, if you're truly a Christian, it'll be demonstrated by the contentment of being out of sin rather than remaining in it. Now, on the other hand, there is, though, this contentment to be claimed. 
It's yours. I mean, this is part of the promise that we have. The faithful, obedient servants of Christ, that no matter what goes on around us, no matter how much that we may be deprived of material goods, no matter how much difficulty there is in living the Christian life, no matter how much we may be despised because of our faith, there is still contentment. And that's the other part that I pray for. I know that there is so much trouble in the Christian life, and so I ask God to help me to see very clearly that this life is a vapor that just passes away. And I want to rest in the contentment that I'm serving Christ and that I'm looking forward to an eternity in heaven, one that's far above my ability to fathom the blessedness of it. This life is going to pass away quickly, and I have to realize that, that God has something better, and that contentment comes only as I am filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, where do I find that kind of contentment? Well, I think that there are two ways that you learn this. One of those is subjective, and the other is objective. Subjectively, I know that I'm in God's will. That's the subjective side. And this is how the Holy Spirit witnesses with my spirit that I am a child of God. Now, that's not something I can show you. You can't look into my heart. I can't look into your heart. I can't tell what's there. Outward actions, we know, are often a demonstration of what's in the heart. But there are many people, as we've just said, that claim to be Christians. And maybe they go through all the motions of it, but they don't really know Christ. And so knowing that I'm in the will of God, that's subjective. That's between me and him. There's an interaction that takes place between me and God that I feel the power of the Spirit in me and I feel the intercession of the Holy Spirit and I feel that conduct of fellowship that's going on as I fellowship with the Father. A few weeks ago, my daughter Clarissa called me and uh, she was driving home from church. Many of you know that uh, she's an... She was an attorney, but when her firm decided to break up, she decided that she would be a stay-at-home mom. And she's had plenty of offers to resume her career and make money. But she called me, and she was having one of those spirit-filled days as she was driving home from church, and she was just so happy. And she just had to call me. She said, Dad, and she lives in San Diego, of course. She said, Dad, I know that I'm doing exactly what God wants me to do. I'm in the place where God wants me to be. And there was just this peace that was in her voice. I mean, she really felt that she was in the will of God. Do you ever have those moments? I mean, can you say right now that you know that you are in the will of God? I mean, there is, is there this contentment that's in your heart that you're, you're in the place in your life where God wants you to be? Do you have a sense of that? I can't explain it to you. I can't explain to you how it feels. You just know this when it happens. That's the spirit witnessing with your spirit that you are a child of God. Now, that may be a subjective feeling. But there's nothing wrong with feelings. And we know there are times when Satan tricks us with feelings, so what we don't want to do is just nail everything down on some emotional feeling that we have. I mean, we, we've been talking about the charismatic movement, and one of the things that has scared us away from our emotions in Baptist churches is all the abuse of the Holy Spirit. And so we just get afraid of it. We, we shy away from it. We don't want to have any emotions in church or anyplace else. But there's nothing wrong with the emotions. Just be sure that you back up the subjective feelings with the objective. 
Now, I know that I'm in God's will, but secondly, I have to look at it objectively, and how do I do that? Well, secondly, I know that my service is effective. So what shows me that I'm actually filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, can we start with this? I've seen prayers answered that when I pray, I know God's listening. And I I know God hears that prayer. He answers the prayer. Now remember, we, we said a moment ago, we quoted that scripture from the Psalms where David said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And then he follows that up. And and I don't know why we never read the next verse. We always read that verse, but not the next verse. You know what the next verse says? It says, but verily God hath heard me. He hath attended to the voice of my prayer. So David saw prayers answered, and that's the way he knew that he was in fellowship with God. He was in the will of God. What else happens objectively to show me that I'm filled with the Spirit? Well, that's why we have verses of Scripture that tell us about the fruits of the Spirit. No fruit is produced where the Holy Spirit is not present. So you can know that you're out of the will of God, that there is no interaction between you and God when you don't have the fruits. Now, it may be that you don't love others. If you have difficulty loving people in your church, if that's hard for you, then you're not filled with the Spirit. You, you, the lack of love is evidence of, of, of not having a complete filling of the Spirit. You know, I'm thankful to say that, and I don't like to use myself as an example, but I can say this, that although I really get frustrated at some church members, there are some of you that are very sweet to my face, but I know that you're peeling the flesh off my back at the same time. Uh, despite that, I still love the people of my church. I love the people that I pastor. And I've never had the feeling about anybody that I could say, I'm glad that that person left. Good riddance. I don't want that person around here anymore. I never say that. Now, I do understand that sometimes God removes people from the church, and he does it for our good. It's good for the body because those people are harmful and we're better off without them. That happens but I've never had the real sense myself, as I look at it from my perspective, that, that I want to get rid of even the troublemakers. Because I always look at a troublemaker as a project. I mean, something, somebody that needs some more work. And so what I really want to do is just straighten the people out that don't act like they should act. That's what I want. And you may say, well, you're the pastor. You have to feel that way about people. But the pastor's just a member of the church. I mean, there, there is... There is no quality that a pastor has that you should not have. Did you know that? There is no quality that I have, and I don't have that that many, but there's none that I have that you shouldn't have. This should be a part of all of our lives. So we look at the fruits of the Spirit, and we have those love, joy, peace, and patience, and gentleness, and faith, and all of those things. If you have those, that's objective proof that the Spirit is at work in you, that He's filling you because you are, you, you are practicing these Christian graces that come through the fruits of the Spirit. Well, then there's another way, another objective way that you know you're filled with the Spirit. And you, you probably imagine that you would hear this. What about your desire to share your faith? What about that desire? Do you really want others to be as you are? See, that desire, 
The desire to see other people saved is evidence of Holy Spirit activity. Listen to what Jesus said to the disciples. This was at the ascension. He said, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. Now, do you ever get the feeling that the disciples begrudge sharing their faith? When the Holy Spirit came on them at Pentecost, did he bring with him disaffection for witnessing? Well, no. You know, I think about how that the, uh, the apostles were formally discussed. I mean, they must have thought that Jesus was out of his mind when he went into the coast of Tyre and Sidon, and there he found a Canaanite woman, and he saved her. And they must have thought that he was a little bit daft for going into Samaria and sitting at Jacob's well and there conversing with a Samaritan woman and taking water from her and saving that woman. They didn't want anything to do with Gentiles. But you know what happened later when Peter preached to Cornelius? When the Holy Spirit got hold of Peter and he went and preached to Cornelius and Cornelius got saved and then Peter brought back that report to the rest of the apostles and to the church about this conversion and what had happened when the Holy Spirit came on them. And do you know what the rest of the church said when they heard the full report of what happened? At first they were skeptical and they said, well, you shouldn't be preaching to Gentiles. But when Peter told them what happened when he preached and how they got saved and how the Holy Spirit came, you know what they said? They rejoiced and they said, then God hath granted Gentiles repentance unto life. See, their whole attitude was changed. They wanted to tell people about Christ. It didn't matter who it was. Whether it was Jew or Gentile, that doesn't matter. They want to tell people about the Lord. And so when the Holy Spirit came on them, that commission that Christ gave them at the ascension that we just read in Acts 1-8, that commission became the passion of their lives. That became the passion of their mission that they must go and they must tell. They must win people to Christ. And that was evidence that the Holy Spirit had come upon them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And if they hadn't been, they never would have had any such a desire. And this is what happens to you when you get saved. When the Holy Spirit fills you, then you'll have a desire to tell other people about Christ. You know, I wonder, why, why is it that we don't have more people here on Wednesday night for the outreach training? Where is that desire? Where is the real anxiousness that we need to tell people about Christ. And why do we have to beg members of the church to attend something like that when they very well could if they didn't have something else that they would rather do? We wonder why do we have to beg and plead for this? If we're filled with the Spirit, then this is exactly what we will do. We'll look for the opportunities to tell people about Christ. Now, I think that's a good place to end the study. We ended the place, the reason why that God put us here. He saved us to be obedient slaves. We just have this gnawing passion that whatever it is, we want to please our Lord and Master. And so what we want, we want sin out. We want to be purged of sin, get sin out. And we want service in. We want to give our best to the service of our Lord and our King. So we empty self of self and give room for the Holy Spirit to come in. And then we're blessed when we obey 
the commandments. That's when, that's really when you're able to claim the contentment. Be filled with the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the time that we've been able to look into this subject tonight. Lord, we do really seek the filling of the Spirit. And I do pray that for every person here, that this would be an honest desire of their lives, that they would want sin out of their lives, any kind of reproach upon the name of Christ. And to replace that sin, we want the Holy Spirit to come in and fill every crevice, to fill every corner of our life, everything that we are. We want the Holy Spirit to have control of. That's where we find our contentment. I pray, Lord, you'd show that to your people. If there is sin in our lives that needs to be rid, we need to get rid of, I just pray that everyone here tonight would confess that sin and then honestly pray and be able to say, Lord, fill me. I want the sin out of my life. Come and fill me with your mercy and your grace, your love, with all the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Work in our hearts tonight, Lord, and we give you the praise for all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.